You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. My name is Curtis Arnold, and I serve as one of the elders here. Our reading today will be from the book of Genesis, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. In the Bible, in the chair back in front of you, it's on page 8. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she was that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael, to Abram. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth that it brings us and how it speaks to us. Father, would you use this passage today as Jeremy brings it to us to teach us about yourself? We pray too that our hearts will be attentive, our hearts will be open to hearing what you have to say to us. We just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Curtis. Harsh. Realistic. Gritty. Three words that capture the tone of Genesis 16, the text before us Today, while some scriptures may feel like a warm and sunny afternoon where the kids are out in the grass and you're sipping on lemonade, Genesis 16 
is none of that. Instead, our text today is tough and raw and honestly may touch closer to home for the way some of your life actually is. I've heard it said that reading the Bible is boring. I've heard it said that guys like me, churches like us, that pick a book of the Bible and they just keep preaching through it little bit by little bit, that's boring. But I'm here to tell you, whatever boredom we experience with the Bible has everything to do with us and nothing to do with the text. Because this morning in our scripture, we get a real taste of the devastating impact of sin, harsh and realistic. Yes, gritty, no doubt. Boring, no way. In fact, if Hollywood were to get a hold of Genesis 16, they'd make this rated R, or maybe they would just put MA on it. But different than Hollywood, our text is not going to glorify sin. Our text is going to show us the devastating consequences of sin. Let none of us leave today thinking, oh, look how good sin appears. No, this text shocks our senses should lead us to realize how sinful we can be and how devastating sin in our lives and to others. For anyone here who has experienced the darker side of life like being taken advantage of, for anybody in here who knows firsthand what it's like to be denied justice, for anyone who's been the victim, being mocked or scorned or abused, here, Genesis 16, speaking to us today. Two truths for us. The first, that God's people seriously sin against one another. And the second, God really cares for those who've been sinned against. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to Genesis 16? No sugarcoating this morning. We are going to get real with God's Word. Big idea number one, God's people seriously sin against one another. I draw this from verses 1 to 6. Let me show you how I draw this Conclusion from the text. Read with me, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay, for those of you who are just jumping in today, perhaps you're unfamiliar with this sermon series in Genesis, you, you should know and understand that since Genesis 12, 12, 13, 14, 15, we have been tracking a very important promise from God to Abram that he's going to have a son. And what we've seen is Abram's wicked old. He's no spring chicken. And at this point of the text, this cat's 85 years old. His wife is 75, and they're still waiting on the promise of God. But there is no babies. 
And so there is this tension that we're sitting with as they wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled. So that's part of what's going on under Genesis 16. There's a second reality that we have to understand that would be true for Sarai in this text. For Sarai in Genesis 16, living without kids would have been totally devastating. For in Genesis 16, children and family were everything. Being a barren wife in this culture would have felt like being a kid in school and having no friends. Now, I realize for some of you it may have been a minute since you were in grade school or middle school, but just imagine you're dropping off a kindergartner to school and you're taking pictures and it's all wonderful and great, and over the course of that kindergarten year, everybody else makes a friend, but not you. And there's all these birthday parties, and everybody else gets invited, but not you. And when it's time to go to lunch, everybody wants to sit next to everybody else, but not you. And then imagine that that happens not only in kindergarten, but through second grade and through sixth grade. And all of a sudden, you're in eighth grade, and you've never been to a friend's house and never did nothing. I mean, a heart breaks for such a story. Or in high school, just the loner who has no friends, nobody likes them. That's the sort of outcast sense Sarai is living with in our text. You feel bad for the girl. She didn't want this. And she even says, it's the Lord who's doing this to me. Every day would have been devastating for her and a reminder that she doesn't fit. And while sadness and loneliness don't excuse sin, having an understanding of Sarai's situation may help us appreciate how she got to be so desperate. Because we may look at this and go, man, why are you so desperate, girl? Here's why. She's been going to school all her life and she don't have a friend. So she comes up with this idea. I know what I'll do. I'll give my maidservant to Abram. Now this idea, that probably sounds bananas to us and rightly so. I mean, people like to watch polygamy stuff on TV, watch a YouTube video about it, or maybe read a book, but at least as far as I understand, any of y'all are practicing polygamy. If you are, we're going to have a conversation. But in those days, it would have been very normal. It would have been culturally appropriate for Sarai to say, Hagar, I want you to go be a wife to Abram. You're going to go into his bedroom. He's going to get you pregnant. You're going to have a baby, and then I'm going to adopt that baby. And for Hagar to say, okay, like that happened. Culture said that's okay. Like a cringy moment for newlyweds when a mom and a dad look at them three months into being married and go, hey, when are you going to have grandkids? would have been the cringy moment for Sarai when her neighbors look at her and go, when you giving Hagar over to Abram? That's culturally what's going on. But what Sarai should have known, and what Israel, the original audience of this, as they sat in the wilderness, should have known, is God's people are never to sin, even in an attempt to find relief from suffering. God's people are never to sin in an attempt to find relief from suffering. 
Sarai does. And it's the first sin domino to fall in a long line of sins we're going to see here in verses 1 to 6. Sarai is guilty of sin, but she's not alone. Pick up with me in the middle of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, would you put your eyes on verse 3 in the text there? Look at verse 3 with me. There's this language progression. Look at the word took and gave her husband. The language construction, the sequence of those three words mirrors an earlier story in Genesis when there was a woman who took something that was not hers to take and gave something that was not hers to give, all in the context of her marriage to her husband. If you're remembering Eve taking the forbidden fruit and giving it to Adam, bingo. And what our author is doing in using identical language construction is wanting readers to see Sarai is not the only one guilty of sin here. Next is her passive husband, Abram, who, like Adam, does not take responsibility to consider the suggestion and cross-check it against God's promises. We're only a couple verses in church, and do you see how sin, like acid in a lab, is destroying everything it touches. The second domino falls then as passive Abram agrees with the awful plan. Four, and Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. But now another sin domino is going to fall in the middle of verse four. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, I can appreciate if any of you would look at verse 4 and go, yo, man, I don't see any sin there, and that's the way I looked at it. But having done the study and learned more about the culture, something else we have to realize is verse 4, our author is showing Hagar's sin, albeit much different than the way she's going to get victimized here in a bit, is still sin. And in the text, it's the sin of pride, different then than Sarai's sin of being a control freak and different than Abram's sin of being passive and perhaps worshiping comfort idols, here's Hagar demonstrating arrogance and condescension. And it is creating an injustice for Sarai as Hagar begins to look at her with contempt. In fact, further textual evidence that Hagar's sinning here can be found in Proverbs 30 verse 23 when the author writes, how significant it is when a maidservant replaces her mistress. That, now then, this, this doesn't mean Hagar isn't been victimized and that doesn't mean she's not found herself in a position where she is utterly powerless and she has all these powerful figures above her. But everyone else's sin does not excuse Hagar from her pride either. For in fact... 
Hagar's sin here at the end of verse 4 only further highlights the pain and devastation of Sarai. See, what Hagar's doing in verse 4, despite Sarai's and, and Abram's sin, what Hagar's doing in verse 4 is the equivalent of introducing a bully into the story of our little school kid who's never had a friend. So, so remember a moment ago, we were talking about this kindergartner and then a sixth grader and then pretend they're in 10th grade, no friend, no friend, no friend. Everybody else has a friend. They want a friend. They've got no friend. And then you bring a bully in who's going to every day look at them and go, you're a loser. Nobody likes you. Leave us alone. Look around. Everybody hates you at this school. And that kid, hard enough to never have a friend, but that kid would be right to go to a teacher and say, would you help me? Would you help me? These, these kids are crushing me. Please. That's what Sarai does then. Look in the text. She goes to Abram. She goes, hey, help. Hey, help. Look what Hagar's doing to me. Which is, despite Sarai's sin that we've already covered, this is the right move for Sarai to say, hey, husband, would you, would you defend me from the bully? But Abram passes the responsibility off. Again, he's passive. Verse 6. And he adds to the relational wreckage, telling Sarai, deal with it yourself. Another sin domino. And so what does Sarai do? End of verse 6. Sarai responds sinfully. No doubt she has been sinned against, but now she is going to respond in sin from the text. Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from Sarai. The translation in our text is not as gritty as the meaning in the original language. The word harshly in our text is used later on when Moses describes how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were enslaved. Why then is this pregnant woman all by herself running through the desert? It's because Sarai's responded sinfully to Hagar's Hagar scorned, and she's abusing her. Like she's beating on her. And Hagar goes, I got nowhere to go. So I got to leave. The sin dominoes, they just keep toppling one another. And doesn't your heart just break for all the devastating sin in a few verses? Is there any doubt God's people seriously sin against one another? Well, let's pause here. Understand then, this point of the text, what the original audience, the Israelites in the wilderness, would have recognized, and it's that God's covenant family has serious sin issues. Just in case you thought, oh, I go to this church, oh, we're part of God's covenant family, oh, I'm going to believe the Bible, everything's rainbows and unicorns, lies. Let the record show, Genesis 16 is showing us there is so much sin. And if we wanted to get down to the nitty-gritty and start parsing out blame, there's enough to go around for everyone. None of the characters can claim innocence or complete 
victim status. There's all of Sarai's sinful baggage added on, Abram's sinful baggage added on, Hagar's sinful baggage, and it is complicated, and it is compounding, and frankly, it's overwhelming. God's covenant family has serious sin issues, perhaps a comfort to the Israelites to know, oh, we're not the only ones with serious sin issues. Perhaps a comfort to some of you here. Perhaps you've experienced some very serious sin issues in your family. Perhaps there's some dark and painful skeletons that you feel like that are in your closet. Perhaps you feel like there have been some sin dominoes that are really sad. For anyone in here who thinks is the story of my past or the story of my family too harsh, too realistic, too gritty for God, take heart. God's covenant family always has had serious sin issues. That's the first takeaway. The second, not explicitly in our text, but implied from the rest of Scripture is this. We must repent of our sin. Church, the people of God have always had serious sin issues. God hears it all. God sees all our sin issues. None of it are in the closet, so to speak. He sees all of it. He knows it, and He's calling us to turn from it. He knows you are sin sick. He knows your family is sin sick. Let us be harsh and realistic and gritty by admitting the sin in our own lives. But drill down with me a bit for the ways that the sin in our text may resemble the sin we need to repent of. And by repent, I mean it's admitting it. Yes, that is sin and that is wrong. And then it is turning from it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm surrendering that to God. I'm, I'm done with this sinful approach and I'm going to worship the Lord instead of returning to my sinful patterns. Look, look at the text. There, there's ways that we might resemble Sarai in her attempt to engineer God's plan for him. Some of us need to repent of being control freaks. There's things that you think, this is a good thing. I want to have this. My friends have this thing, and I want this thing. But God has not given you this thing. And so your response has been to sinfully go get it for yourself. We must repent of the temptation to find relief from suffering outside of God's timing. But maybe your issue isn't that you're a control freak. Maybe your issue is that you, like Abram, are passive. You ignore the responsibility that God has entrusted to you. So if you're here and God has entrusted you responsibility, you don't sit on your... You don't sit and pass the buck to somebody else. Men especially, we are not to be passive like Abram. We take responsibility for what we've been given, and in ways that we have failed, and certainly all of us, myself included, have, we repent and we are to be 
active, not looking to comfort idols. I'm watching TV, honey. I can't be bothered with that. Work was too hard. I can't be bothered with that. We step in, take responsibility. But maybe your issue isn't a control idol or a comfort idol. Perhaps your issue is pride and contempt. Like Hagar in verse 4. You have a, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do attitude. For any here who have a sin issue of pride, understand all of us are under some authority. All of us answer to someone, not least of which is God. And if you're part of this church, remember Ephesians 5.21, we are to submit to one another so we repent of this attitude of pride. Or maybe none of these is you. Perhaps your issue, the end of verse 6, is overpowering and dominating those around you. For any in here guilty of the sin there at the end of verse 6, you are not to deal harshly with others. You're never to abuse another image bearer. The Lord will have his justice. We let justice be in the Lord's hands. We don't take justice into our own hands. Hey, moms and dads especially, I know these precious kids can drive you bananas. But we honor them. They are made in the image of God. God's people are to trust God to do what only God can do. And that's the gospel here in this first part. In fact, later on in the Bible, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul picks up the story of Abram going into Hagar, and he says, that action was anti-gospel. Paul uses this text to say, Abram is the very opposite of what we as Christians should do, because Abram was trying to take the promises of God into his own hands, and he took Hagar into his own tent. Instead of believing in the promises of God, Abram slept with Hagar. What Abram should have done is said to himself, I have a promise from God, and the only person who's going to be able to provide this promise is God, so I will trust and wait on him. But instead, Abram decided to take matters into his own hands, and that's why he's guilty of legalism here. He's working to save himself. Only God saves. There is nothing we can do. We are to not sinfully like Abram try to provide the promises of God on our work. We rest in faith alone. Christian, repent for any of these sins we might be guilty of. Control idols, comfort idols, pride idols, power idols, self-saving idols. If you don't, you will fail and you will hurt everyone around you as sin dominoes will continue to fall. Well, at this point in our narrative, the focus shifts off of Sarai and Abram and now we'll focus in on Hagar. Despite her own sin in verse 4, Hagar is feeling damaged and devastated from the sin of others. We're going to focus in on her. This point will go a little quicker. God really cares for those who've been sinned against. For any in here who feel, yeah, I've done some stuff, Pastor, but man, you, I have been so hurt. Good news. God really cares about you. 
See pregnant Hagar, she's run away. She's left. She's out in the middle going down to Egypt. That's where she's from. She's headed back home thinking, if I get back home, maybe somebody there will actually protect me. Maybe somebody there will actually listen to me. And nobody listened to me back at this place with Sarah. Maybe somebody will see me and, and help me. Oh, Hagar, there is one who sees you. There is one who hears you. He knows. Look, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. Israelites would have known that place. It was a spring on the way to Shur, 8. And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? A question for anybody in here who may be feeling victimized or abused or on, you're running from something. A question for you, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Know this, God knows where you are. If you feel like you're running right now, He sees you. He cares. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, church, real talk. We've already discussed how Hagar was getting beaten. And now in the text, the Lord tells her to go back. Harsh, realistic, gritty, yes, boring, no. What in the world is going on with verse 9? If you're honest with the text, this one's tough. This is tough for me to stomach. Why would God tell the abused Hagar to return to that environment. Three realizations helped me out. Maybe one of these would help you. First, we don't see the long arc of God's plan. None of us in here can see what God's doing big picture. And of course, Hagar couldn't see it either. And so when we come to something in the scriptures that we don't understand, or when we come to a scripture that calls us to obey something that doesn't feel right for us, we must submit our feelings to the text. And just so you know, if you're, if you're like sitting there going, yeah, but buddy, there's some things the Bible says to do that really feel bad to me. Well, that's true for all of us, me too. I mean, if you've been reading the Bible and you've never felt bad about one of the things that you have, you're not reading it very close. Christians, we come to something like this, and we don't take God off of the stand of the judge and put him in the stand of the defendant and look at him and demand, you explain yourself to me, and it better be a good enough explanation, otherwise I'm not going to do what you said. That's not how this works. We can ask real questions of the Lord, but we are not his judge. God does what he wants to do, and it's always for the good of a Christian. Romans 8, 28 confirms this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And if we actually knew what God was doing in these hard-to-reconcile areas, I believe that we would look and say, not only will I obey you, but thank you for what you're doing. It's good. That was the first help for me with verse 9. A second will come from the rest of our text. We haven't walked through it yet. We're going to see Hagar does not return to the place of her previous abuse by herself. She has left 
feeling alone, but when she returns, she will go with God who has explained to her, I hear you and I see you. So she is not going alone. The Lord will be her protector. And she knows that. Final help for me was that despite the affliction and the command to return, in verses 10 and 11, we see God offering Hagar a glorious promise, saying, I'm going to multiply your offspring. Hagar, not only are you going to have a boy, but that boy is going to be the father of multitudes, which mirrors the promise God gave Abram. See, those who would have thought, God only cares about the Israelites. God only cares about His chosen people. He doesn't give uh, two cares for anybody else. Would be shocked to read this text to go, wow, God's caring for this Egyptian foreigner woman. And God's making a promise to her son who is not going to be ethnic Hebrew, but still will be given so many offspring. And look closely at Ishmael's name. Do you have a footnote in your text there in the middle of 11 for the name Ishmael? My text does. Forgive me. Ishmael means God hears. The Lord is naming this son for Hagar. And this is, I think this is beautiful. The Lord is saying, I know you might have thought you were alone, Hagar. Perhaps when Sarah was hurting you, you thought nobody could, could hear you, but I did. I heard you. And in fact, I want you to name your son, I hear. So that the rest of his life, you know, Hagar, I am a God who hears you. Hagar, you hearing me? The God of the universe hears you. The implication for any who have suffered here. God hears you. But he doesn't just hear you. Look in the text, 13. So Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well, Israelites would have known this well, was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. See, in addition to being heard, Hagar realizes God has seen her. She's being heard, she's seen, which leads Hagar to do something we've seen nowhere else in this text. This foreign abused, spicy woman decides to name God, which if, if you didn't know in Old Testament Israelites, you don't name God. <laughs> He'll name himself, thank you very much. But here's this woman who's like, I don't know what the rules are. I just know God sees me. And so I'm going to call him a God who sees. And this little water here that's going to be here forever, it's a water that says God sees me. Truly he has seen me. Hagar knew that God had heard her. She believed that God had seen her. And that's, I think, ultimately what motivated her to walk back into the very potentially environment where she might again be subjected to some brutality. I imagine Hagar walks back knowing, no matter what, I've got God with me and I'm going to go back into this environment because I have the Lord. She has her son. 
Abram names the son Ishmael, formalizes the end of our text, as well as Abram welcoming his son in. That brings us to the end. And for the original Israelites then, at this point, the application for them to consider would have been this. If God has heard and seen a foreign female named Hagar, an outsider to the covenant family, if God sees and and hears and cares about this woman, why then Israel could trust God would hear and see them too. See, the Israelites as God's covenant people, they had serious sin issues too, and they came from serious abuse. They had been treated harshly under the Egyptians. God had heard their outcry, had rescued them, taken them into the, toward the promised land. And after rescuing them, God had given them His law, His Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. But the Israelites had ignored His law. They disobeyed the promises of God. And there was all of this serious sin issue. And now they were wandering in the wilderness as a consequence of sin against God. And they very well might have been wondering, does God care for us? Does He hear us? Does He see us? In our text, you've got a woman in the same desert that the Israelites were wandering around. God cared for Hagar. God cared for His Israelites. And by extension, God cares for you. God cares for you. See, Genesis 16 was written down and saved. And it is not boring. It's written down and saved so you might hear God's promises speaking through His Word. You may not go to a water fountain and hear an angel of the Lord meeting you there to say these words, but more confident am I of the words in this text that the Lord would be saying to you right now, I hear you, I see you. Right now in some mysterious way, it is the word of the Lord coming to any in here who might feel like Hagar and he being told, God cares for you. For those who faced harsh and gritty reality of abuse or affliction, you may think you're alone. You are not. The God of the universe, He cares. And that may sound radical, but it would have been radical for Hagar. I mean, I'm guessing Hagar's out in the wilderness by this drinking fountain. She's, she's meeting the angel of the Lord and she thinks, oh dear, I've been out in the hot heat too much. I should have rested more. It would have taken radical faith for Hagar to believe and return. So it takes radical faith for us today to hear the word of the Lord and believe and trust Him. Despite your sin, church, God hears and sees you. And that's the sermon in a sentence. If you just take one thing away, that would be the Genesis 16 heart for you. Despite your sin, God hears you. God sees you.
Like, Pastor, how? How do you know that for sure? How do you know that for sure? And this is the way I want to end. If you keep reading the book of Genesis, you're going to find out Hagar, well, sorry, we just saw it. Hagar does give birth to a son. His name is Ishmael. Would you say the word Ishmael? One, two, three. Ishmael. God kept his promise to Hagar. And I don't want to give everything away, but if you keep reading a few more chapters, the promise of God giving a son to Abram and Sarai, it's going to come true too. God's going to give them a son named Isaac. Would you say Isaac? One, two, three. Isaac. Both Ishmael and Isaac, their name has very important meaning. Ishmael's name, we've already seen, is God hears. Then Isaac's meaning, we'll see in a few chapters, is laughter. And that's, of course, because Sarai's 99 when she gives birth to laughter. I mean, I don't know if you think it's funny that a 99-year-old girl has a baby, but I think that's kind of funny. I mean, when next time you see a 99-year-old lady having a baby, you call me and we'll giggle. (laughs) She giggles too. But the reason I can so confidently tell you that God is going to keep his promise to you is not just because of Ishmael and not just because of Isaac, but because there's another son named Emmanuel. God with us. That's Jesus. See, God sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us, who came knowing he would be abused and scorned. Emmanuel, before coming in the manger, knew the harsh, gritty reality of sin in this world. He knew how sin dominoes had worked. He had seen it all, and yet Emmanuel said, I will go. But different than everybody in our text, Emmanuel came, and he was innocent. He never did anything wrong. And yet, Emmanuel, God with us, came to earth. And he was abused and mistreated. He was seriously sinned against, and he experienced firsthand the consequences of the harsh, gritty reality of sin. And on the cross, he died for all our sins, though he deserved none of it. On the cross, for all the ways that you and I have tried to sinfully engineer God's promises for him, he died for that. For all the ways that you and I are guilty of being control freaks, he died for that. For all the ways that we decide to worship comfort idols instead of Christ, he died for that. For all the ways that we are proud or passive for all the ways that that justice has been ignored or for all the ways that we have mistreated others and taken justice into our own hands. Emmanuel, God with us, he died. That's how I know with confidence that if you're here and you're feeling abused and mistreated and the victim, you're wondering, does God even care for me? He does. In Jesus, he shows you his love. For those here who aren't yet Christians, you're just checking this Jesus thing out, thinking you might be pretty messed up. Good news. God loves really messed up people. Not a country club together trying to pretend that things are just fine. Or a gritty emergency room calling it like it is. We all need Jesus. If you're here and you don't have him, he's your hope. 
He's your salvation. Loving Jesus isn't all rainbows and unicorns. But Jesus will meet you in real life. Despite your sin, God wants you. Let me pray that would happen, change your life. Jesus, would you take the truth of our word and, and I pray you would push it deep into our lives. I pray for those who are victims that they would experience your grace. For those who don't believe, Holy Spirit, save now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.